So here's the deal. Uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we're walking through a sermon series and Jesus' most popular sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It encompasses three chapters in the book of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Now, if you are a note taker, uh, the, the title of this message is called What's the Point? And the whole emphasis that we're going to talk about this morning is this. What is the point of this book? What is the point of the Bible? And if you've been following Jesus for a little bit, maybe you've experienced this, you meet people all the time who have such confusion centered around this book, confused about what's the point of it, confused about what, what are some of the passages in it, confused about distortions that they've heard about it. And so if you're new to this whole church deal, maybe you're curious about Jesus I'm hoping that this is a really encouraging message for you, and more than that, a very clarifying message for you as to what the emphasis of this book is that we as followers of Jesus are studying and teaching and talking about and meditating on and memorizing. What is the point of this? I was sharing Jesus with somebody this past week. And as we were talking about some of the teachings of Jesus, this person said to me, you know, this Jesus that you're telling me about yesterday wants me to ignore all my problems because of something that was written 2,000 years ago? And I thought, man, it's, it's a valid point. Why is that? Why should we believe this? Why should we listen to the word of God? And so this morning, that's what we're after. We're after to understand what is, why is this so important? Why does this matter And what's the aim in our pursuit? So we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. And we're going to read four verses that are, I'll admit, off the cuff, somewhat confusing. And this took me a long time to chew on this week as I was studying this passage and seeking Jesus. But I'm praying this is going to be very clarifying for you. So we're going to stand up to read this together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'm sorry if you have a baby, dude. I know that's hard. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to read this. And here's what Jesus is saying as he continues the Sermon on the Mount. To the crowd that's listening, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are in the crowd, here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. What he's saying there is the Old Testament scriptures in your Bible. The whole back half that's really big has confusing parts. He says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Last verse, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. So if you have a Bible, you can keep that passage open. We're going to refer to it a lot. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is continuing really his manifesto for the kingdom. He has come on the scene as this powerful rabbi, this teacher, that nobody had heard of, and he's performing miracles. 
The scripture says he's preaching with authority. Other teachers, they preach from authority. Jesus preaches with authority. They've never seen anything like it. He's healing people. We're going to find out he's walking on water. He's touching people that were sick, and they're being restored, and it's powerful. And so he's preaching this message, the Sermon on the Mount, which is like his cultural mission for the kingdom. If you've ever gotten hired at a new job, they walk you through orientation. Here's our values. Here's what our company is about. This is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's saying, take a seat. I'm going to tell you about our kingdom. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care what you've read. I don't care what people have told you. This is what I'm about. And he begins with what's called the Beatitudes. These are these core values of what it means to follow Jesus. Then he gives you a new identity where he says, you're the salt and the light of the world. Powerful. I know. And then he moves to this text. And he's addressing some people in the crowd that have complications with his teaching. You see, the religious leaders of this day, they thought Jesus was showing up on the scene and he was neglecting the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what you call your Old Testament, you know, that massive chunk of scripture before this book, Matthew. They thought Jesus was neglecting and because of that, a heretic, because all they had their whole life was these scriptures to lean on and to read and to study. And so rightfully so, they were skeptical. I don't know if you guys are into documentaries on cults. Has anybody ever seen a documentary on a cult? So we got some cultish people in here, Rob. So here's the deal. <clears throat> if you've seen, I think there was a new documentary that just came out about the Waco cult, David Koresh. Do you all remember this one? So there's some crazy stuff with this, right? And we've all got to be a little skeptical these days. When people come saying that they have an authoritative message and you need to follow them and you need to drink this juice, okay, be careful about the juice. Is that grape juice? I want to know. All right, so, so these people come on the scene. And so Jesus similarly, here he comes on the scene preaching this message that is foreign to those listening, but what Jesus says is so wild. <clears throat> he doesn't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't come to neglect the scripture that they've given their lives to and that they've studied. And for many of them, they've memorized. He doesn't come to do that. Now, I want to give you just very briefly, we're going to go into the weeds a little bit. I want to give you a little bit of background on what is called the Old Testament in your Bible. So 75% of your Bible is called the Old Testament. When Jesus is preaching, you have to know there was no such thing as a New Testament. The New Testament that we're studying today doesn't come until after Jesus' death and resurrection some years later as people penned it through the Spirit of God. But the Old Testament was what they studied and understood. This is what they looked to, what they memorized, and what they waited on. The Old Testament consisted of the law, the writings, and the prophets. So when he says the law and the prophets, what he's saying is the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament was made up of history and poetry, wisdom, prophecy, and law. But the Old Testament is actually a covenant. The word testament is another word for covenant, which means promise. So there is the old promise and the new promise. The old promise that we study that the people of Israel gave their lives to was a promise from God on how he would guide and guard their relationship with him. So this covenant possessed three types of laws, typically. One was civil law. So this was their 
governing laws to protect their people. You think of like our American government. They had civil law. Secondly, they had moral law, which was to guide their relationship with God. If you think of the Ten Commandments, that was their moral law. And third, they had ceremonial law. Ceremonial law was their uh, sacrificial system, their Sabbaths, their festivals, and all of these things that pertain to their purity in their relationship with God. How many of you are bored right now? Now, just track with me. We're going somewhere. Now, here's what happened. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the religious elite had taken these scriptures. They had placed such emphasis on them, but they had missed the point of them. They had missed, in fact, who they were pointing to. So here's our first point if you're taking notes. Here's our first point. What's the point of this? First point is this, that Jesus claims that scripture points to him by finding its fulfillment in him. Okay? Scripture, Jesus claims that it points to him by finding its fulfillment in him. Look back at our text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all that is accomplished. Now, this is a wild statement that Jesus is making right here. In our day and age, we read this in context. You're sitting in a, you know, a metal chair and you don't think much of it, right? I understand that. But Jesus' audience, when he says this, this would have been a very, very powerful statement. Jesus is claiming that He's not come to neglect the scriptures. In fact, he is the fulfillment of them because they point to him. In fact, he claims in verse 18 that not an iota or a dot will pass until he accomplishes all things. Now, that's not language we use a lot, but iota was the smallest letter in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was written in, and a dot was the smallest marking of a pen. So what he's saying is, the law, the scriptures that you're reading, I will fulfill every little detail that is in them because they point to me and they're about me. Now, the word fulfill here in the scripture, hi, sweetie. The word fulfill here in the scripture, uh, she's tracking. Claire, I was talking to my baby. All right, here's the deal. The word fulfill here means, <laughs> means to accomplish its declared function, okay? So here's what I mean. <laughs> Jesus said, I have come to not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does he mean? He's saying, I have come to fulfill the law's declared function. All of the Old Testament scripture, I have come to fulfill or complete its function. So what Jesus is saying, track with me, what he's saying is this, I am fulfilling the law's requirements, standards, and purpose. Now I'm going to share with you a few ways Jesus does this, okay? Number one, Jesus fulfills hundreds of prophecies that are given in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah. So the Old Testament gave all of these prophetic words about a Messiah that was going to come and save people from their sin. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies that the Old Testament spoke to this coming Messiah. 
The second thing Jesus did was he fulfilled the holy standard of the moral law. The law that was given to God's people that nobody could fulfill, nobody could meet, nobody could meet this standard, Jesus met it by living a life we couldn't live. Third, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws. People had to offer sacrifices for their sin as a temporary way to cleanse them from their conscience and their guilt and their shame. But Jesus was the Lamb of God who died once and for all, fulfilling the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled the law. As Moses received it on a mountain, now Jesus enters that same mountain and sits down and teaches a new way, the new covenant. You see, the Old Testament, it tells a story of redemption, of God drawing his people and leading them and guiding them with his law, with his word. But what Jesus has done is he has claimed that all of that is pointing to him because it finds its fulfillment in him. So I'm going to bring this to a close here. What's the point, right? The first point is this. The point is a person. What's the point of this book? When you study the scripture, when you read it, and you're confused, and you don't understand, you have to hear me. The point is a person. The person is Jesus. Jesus says that all of scripture points to me and finds its fulfillment in me. Jesus is the hero of the scripture. And Bob Utley, theologian, he says now with the new covenant, the new covenant is now a person, not a set of required rules. Where the old covenant was this required rules that we had to abide by, we couldn't fulfill, we couldn't complete, we couldn't measure up. Now Jesus institutes a new covenant, which is following the person of Jesus. Here's the tension, guys. I want you to track with this, as confusing as this can be. The point is a person. It's really easy to go to church these days and hear a sermon with three points and production and performance and miss Jesus. It's really easy for you to see YouTube clips of people who are telling you how to live a better life, things that will encourage you, maybe some things you can apply and miss Jesus. Jesus is the point. And he has come to fulfill the law because he is the point of it. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus talking to the religious elite said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. His point is, I am the point. The scripture points to Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Here's the second point. If you're taking notes, is this, that Jesus claims that the scripture has authority and calls us into a life of obeying it and teaching it. Okay, Jesus claims that the scripture has authority and calls us into a life of obeying it and teaching it. Look back at our text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, so in light of what I've just said, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did anybody feel that verse like deep within them? You read that verse and it's pretty sobering. Jesus says, the scripture points to me 
finds its fulfillment in me. Therefore, take my word seriously. It has authority. It has power. And because it has authority, we should obey it and we should teach it. Jesus gives us an incredibly high view of Scripture. And because of uh, having a very high view of Scripture, he calls us to a very high view of obedience. Because Jesus has fulfilled the Scripture, because it points to him, he calls us to see its authority and to live a life in obedience. In fact, he's saying, not an iota, not a dot's going to pass until I accomplish it. That's how authoritative it is. Every part of Scripture has authority from God. It says it like this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What he's saying is Scripture is authoritative. It's from God. It has power from God. It is to be heeded, listened to, and obeyed. Now, here's the thing. I was talking to our staff this week, and we were reading this passage together. I was like, what word stands out to you in this text? And the word that stood out was the word relaxed. Think about that word. He says, therefore, because Scripture points to me, and it finds its fulfillment in me, Whoever relaxes these commands will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we live in a day and age where we relax the commands of God. Would you agree with this? And I don't know what it is for you specifically. As I was praying about it this week, I was like, God, where am I relaxing your word? And it's so natural for all of us. We hear God's word, and there's specific parts that, if we're honest, are very difficult to hear, very difficult to stand up to. I've been having a lot of conversations with people that differ from me and a lot of viewpoints that I believe Scripture speaks to. And it's very difficult because if I'm honest, I, I want to be loving, I want to be gracious, but I want to honor God's Word, but I don't want to relax God's Word. Because according to Jesus, whoever relaxes His commandments is the least in the kingdom of heaven. He still says you get in, He just says you're the least. I don't know what that's about. I'm just preaching the word. I don't know what that means fully, but I thought about that. God, would we not be a people who relax your word, but we believe it. And then he says, if you believe it and obey it, you teach it. Now, I don't know if you picked this up, but really what this is, this is a call to discipleship. Do you remember the command Jesus gives to his disciples before he leaves the earth? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the call on every believer's life is a call to not only heed Jesus' word as authoritative, to believe it, obey it, and teach it to others. Jesus calls every believer to hear his word as authoritative. And because it's authoritative, even to the smallest letter and mark, we believe it, we obey it, and we teach it. That's a call to discipleship. Now, let me tell you this. I don't know if the church has lied to you over the years, but many churches have told you, hey, just come, come be a part of this. Just come sit here. Come listen to this guy talk on the mic for 30 minutes. You didn't understand a thing he said, but just come do that. Sit in the chair. Leave. Have a great life. No, Jesus called every one of us to be disciple makers. Did you know that? 
to believe his word, obey his word, and be sent out to teach others. I wanted to give you an example of how this works. I have three photos on the screen, Rob, uh, Claire, excuse me. So this first photo, you can't see the young lady because her back is turned. But that is Kayla. Does anybody know Kayla? Now, I want to tell you a story. I'm going to give you a progression here because of how, how beautiful and powerful this is. The guy in the back, that's Ryan. You see that guy's head in the back? Good-looking guy. Those two guys, two girls, two girls, one of the girls holding Kayla, that's Betsy and Sarah. They played a significant part in Kayla's story. So Kayla comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and she's baptized as a public proclamation of I am following Jesus. His word is authoritative. He's the Lord of the heavens and the earth, and I've received him into my life, and I'm going to obey him and follow him, and I'm going to be baptized as an act of obedience. Then Kayla takes God's word, which she takes so seriously that she's not only obeying it, she's teaching it. And then she leads another young lady to Christ. This lady is named Nikki. And then she starts to teach Nikki about Jesus. She's obeying Jesus. She's teaching others to do the same. And guess what? Nikki gives her life to Jesus. And Nikki says, the word is authoritative. I believe it. It points to Jesus. I've received it. It's fulfilled in my life. Now you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go teach it. And you know who Nikki leads to Christ? Jasmine. And Jasmine comes to Christ. Are y'all tracking with me right here? Come on, somebody. So then Nikki's, so Nikki says, okay, Jesus is Lord of my life. I'm hearing his word. I'm responding to it. It's authoritative. I'm going out. I'm sharing it with other people. Jasmine comes to Christ. And then Jasmine says, Jesus' word is authoritative. He's the Lord of the heavens and the earth. His word is fulfilled. I'm going to receive him as Lord, and I'm going to be baptized as a declaration that Jesus is Lord. Come on, somebody. That's called discipleship. All it is is the process of one person teaching another person how to follow Jesus. But this is the call on every believer's life. Guess what? There's nothing special. These are special ladies, but there's nothing special about them in the sense of their role in the body of Christ. Every one of you is called into that same progression. Every one of you. If you believe Jesus' word is authoritative, if when you read it you believe Jesus is speaking to me, and he's called me to believe him and obey him and share his word. Guess what? Just track with me for a second here. If you never share his word, guess what you don't believe? You don't believe it's authoritative. If you never share Jesus with people, what it shows me for myself is I have a very low view of the authority of Jesus and his word. Because if I believed it, why wouldn't I share it? And that's not, a, that's not a shameful push or plug there. My point is, I know if I have a high view of the authority of Scripture, if I read it, study it, give my life to it, and then share it. I can't help but do this. I can't help but tell people. I tell people all the time, it's not hard for me to share photos of my daughter. I love her so much. I'll stick around after service. I got 20 new photos I want to show you. Okay, we just got a new turban collection that my wife made me do a reel in. Okay, so I have like eight different colors of turbans that she's been wearing. And I've, I'll show you all the photos. I'd love to show you. You know why? Because I love her so much. I love her with all my heart, with all my life. And guess what? I love Jesus too, with all my heart, with all my life. And I'm going to tell you about him. There's no way around it. You're going to hear it. If you don't want to be my friend, I get it. I'm still going to track you down. I'm still going to share Jesus with you. Because I believe him with all my heart. So this is the beauty of discipleship, guys, when Jesus says, look, I've come to fulfill the word. And guess what? Therefore, obey it and teach it. 
But here's the last piece, and this is probably the crux of the whole thing. Verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus concludes this section with this. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus concludes this section with what is probably the primary verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you have a pen, you want to mark this verse. This verse is the filter for which you are going to read and study the rest of the sermon. Now, when Jesus would have spoken this verse, put yourself in this scenario. For the religious elite that he's referencing to, he's speaking to normal, average people like you and I, and he says, unless your living surpasses that of those leaders, you're never getting into my kingdom. And you have to know, everyone in the crowd at that point would have thought, that's insane. That's crazy. In fact, that's impossible. If you notice, the very next verse in the Sermon on the Mount is on anger. You know why? Probably because everybody in the crowd was angry. They heard this and they go, oh, uh, what? And so Jesus is like, now I tell you about anger, right? He was, just kinda, he was just going with it, all right? I don't even think Jesus had planned this sermon. He was just going with the emotions of the room. So he says this. That was heretical, probably. So he says this, and he says this, and the people think, wait. I've got to be better than those guys? That's impossible. That's impossible. According to the law in the Old Testament, there were 613 commands. Can you imagine, like, if anybody writes on their bathroom window, you know, like you have those verses. You, you, Michelle, you're a bathroom writer, aren't you? I guarantee you're a bathroom writer. you got all these verses, you know, on your bathroom. Where, like, you can do it, girl. Imagine you, had 600, imagine you had 613 commands on your mirror. Like, okay, you can do this, girl. No, you can't. You can't do this, girl. You cannot do this. This is impossible. And Jesus is saying, you've got to surpass that. What? Like, I've got to fulfill 614 commands. I've got to give one more shekel. I've got to give one more hour in prayer. This is impossible. Most of the Old Testament law said the Pharisees were blameless. Like, they didn't mess up. They never failed. But here's what happens, guys. And this is where you've got to track with me. On what's the point? What's the point of this? Track with me. <laughs> anyone hearing this would think, how can I exceed these? Well, here's, here's the thing. What the Pharisees and the scribes and even the crowd had missed was this. They had missed the point of the scriptures, okay? The Pharisees, they had an artificial righteousness that couldn't reproduce itself in a life-giving way. They had dead rituals, but they didn't have a living relationship. They had an external masquerade. They had missed the whole point of God's word and God's way. They knew the laws. They knew the numbers. They were blameless in them, but they missed the heart of it. When Jesus speaking about these very people, here's what he had to say. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. Here's what he says about these exact people. He says, truly I say to you. Oh, excuse me. No, no, no. There we go. 15.8. This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They know the law, they obey the law, but they've missed the point. In Matthew chapter 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed 
and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people who are righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Are you tracking with me? What's the point of this? You see, all the law, the, law, the scripture, the commands and all this, they had fulfilled, they had been walking in those, they had obeying those, but they missed the point of it. Here's the third point that I want you to take away. Jesus reveals that the heart of scripture is a matter of the heart. Jesus reveals that the heart of scripture is a matter of the heart. It points to Jesus. It's authoritative in Jesus, but never miss this, that the heart of Scripture is actually a matter of the heart. The leaders that Jesus is speaking to and why he says your righteousness has to exceed theirs is because theirs was simply in their head. It had never gotten to their heart. Guess what? Track with me here. Sometimes the farthest distance the gospel has to get is 18 inches from your head to your heart. I know a lot of people who have the gospel here, but it's never invaded here. For the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the gospel was all in their head. It had never gotten to their heart. They knew what to do. They knew how to fulfill the law. They knew how to obey the commandments. They would tithe to the nth degree, and yet the gospel had never penetrated their heart. And so Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that because that righteousness is all external. It's not internal. What Jesus is after is what we call an inside-out righteousness, It's a righteousness that invades the heart of man and flows into his life. It's a righteousness that transforms your heart and then it flows to your hands. Never the other way around. It's always the gospel gets your heart and then it flows into your life. Listen, Jesus summarized all of scripture with two commands. Do you know what they are? Love God with all of your heart. It's about loving God. It's about loving him and knowing him. And then love your neighbor as yourself. If you're confused about the scripture, Jesus says it's pretty simple. It's about your heart. Love me with all your heart and love other people with all your heart. In fact, in the Old Testament, this was nothing new. The writer Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 about this very idea and how it works. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Did you catch the order? He says, I'm going to change your heart, and then you're going to walk in my commandments. Never the opposite. Never the backwards. Never fulfill these commandments, and hopefully someday it it works its way down to your heart. No, the gospel is first a transformation of your heart. That flows into your life. Jesus, the emphasis of this word is to penetrate your heart. It's to transform you from the inside out. To know him. So what's the point of this book as we close? Jesus claims that the point is him. He claims that it's authoritative and should be believed and obeyed and taught. And he claims that the heart of it is a matter of the heart. That it really doesn't matter how much you know of it if you don't know him. And he hasn't transformed you from the inside out. 
So as we close today, I want to leave you with one really simple application, and that is this. Start with your heart. Start with your heart. If you are brand new to Christianity, or maybe you are on the outside looking in, you're just curious, and you're investigating what it would look like to even approach Jesus in a relationship, you have to know what he's after first is your heart. Jesus is after your heart. He's not after your rigid ritualism and adherence to all these laws and externality if he doesn't have your heart. Jesus is after your heart. He loves you, he knows you, and he wants for you to know him. I haven't shared a lot about my personal testimony uh, here at church, I don't think. I gave my life to Jesus on Halloween night of 2008, and my story was one of kind of a culmination of things happening, leading me to this point where I finally had to surrender my life to Jesus. Maybe this is similar to you. I knew of Jesus. I had heard the gospel that Jesus was the son of God who gave his life for me. He died on the cross, paying my penalty, fulfilling the law so I could have a right relationship with God. I heard all of the messages. They called Jesus Lord and Savior. I'll be honest, I was cool with Jesus as Savior. I didn't want Jesus as Lord. I didn't want to surrender my life to Jesus as Lord. Let's be honest. That's probably the number one difficulty people have when it comes to the gospel, is it requires surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. And so I kind of continued my life and living my own way. I sort of tried to clean my life up at certain points. I knew there was periods in my life where I thought this is really messy. I don't think this is probably God's best for me. And so I would, I would try to tinker with things, uh, my purity, um, addictions, and try to perform them or clean them up in my own power, maybe. But I was always, I couldn't do it. I didn't have the power to stop myself from living in those patterns and rhythms and sin. And so I was enslaved to them. But I didn't want to surrender my life, so I was sort of trying to hold on to my life and, and still sort of clean it up in my own power. And then my life caught up with me, and my sin caught up with me. And I found myself broken. And I remember going back to my apartment on Halloween night, and it was a different type of prayer. It wasn't the prayer that I used to pray, which was like, Jesus, help me be better at baseball. It's not working out. Um, or, you know, the selfish prayers that I would play, pray constantly. This time it was different. And I remember I got on my knees and it was praying, Jesus, I surrender my life. Come into my heart. I don't need you to change my situation. I need you to change me. Change me. Start with my heart. Let the gospel get here. And for the first time, I had what's called in the scripture a broken and contrite spirit. David, in the Old Testament, after committing the darkest sin of his entire life, he commits adultery and he murders a man and he's called out in his sin and he claims this. He says, the Lord will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. I would do something to fix it. I try to pay God off. He says, no, God will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. What he's saying is you can't pay God off. You can't come and try to cover your own sin with your own works and your own deeds and cleaning up your own life. God is not after that. He will not be pleased with that sacrifice. What he is after is your heart. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise or ever reject. So here's my question as we close. Have you ever come to Jesus with a broken and contrite heart? Have you ever come after studying this, hearing this, I don't care how many sermons you've heard, have you ever come with a broken and contrite heart? Because here's the deal. If you've never come with that, you've never experienced the power of Jesus. You have never experienced it. You can hear the words. They can enter your mind. You can know the verses. You can fulfill the laws. You can do all those things. But Jesus is after your heart. Have you ever come with open hands in a broken and contrite spirit where you're not negotiating with God anymore? You're simply surrendering. There's no more negotiating when you have a broken and contrite heart. You come to Jesus on your face and you say, have your way, Jesus. You have my heart. And it's the best thing in the world. It's the most life-giving thing in the world. And Jesus will take your heart of stone and the gospel promises he'll give you a heart of flesh, a new heart transformed, changed. Come on, somebody. Somebody say, new heart. New heart. That's, I need a new stash. That's what I need. So we're going to close this morning. I asked the band to play this song from like 2003. Um, come on, somebody. Come on. <laughs> 